0: Welcome to our Next Generation Book Club. I'm Dan Ackerman here with Scott Stein and today we're going to talk about Born, the new novel from Jeff Vandermeer, who you may also know from his Southern Reach trilogy, Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance. And like those books, Born is about technology and biology and biomechanics and skirts with science fiction without ever fully crossing over into the genre. And Jeff Vandermeer is going to call in later. We're going to talk to him, but first Scott's going to tell
1: us a little bit about the book. We started reading this at the same time, and we realized that we were really into it. A woman named Rachel is living with somebody named Wick in a mysterious post-apocalyptic city. It's unnamed, but it's being run by an organization known as The Company. And everyone's being terrorized, among other things, by a gigantic bear that can fly. And she finds this organism that she calls Born that has strange evolutionary powers and begins to change as the book goes on. And it's part of many biological experiments that we were trying to learn about in this book that began to unlock the secrets of what has happened and what's about to happen.
0: Let me just say, uh, spoiler warning, this is a book club. We assume you've read the book, so there are going to be some spoilers conversations when Scott and I talk about the book and when author Jeff Vandermeer called in later on. Let's talk for a couple minutes about what we're doing and, oh, and why. True. We're doing a CNET book club, and we thought about this because we read a lot of the same books. I'm like, yeah. oh, we we should discuss these. What a great idea for a podcast! I think the idea is to pick interesting books that have some sort of technology or science fiction or genre tie-ins, uh, like a hashtag, like nerd books only that we all around the CNET office sit around and talk about.
1: Yeah, weird, obsessive, interesting books. We started on Twitter. we were both reading Born, and it just we suddenly realized we got to be talking about this. We're always talking about books that we're reading. It's my favorite thing to do. Is just have this have this list of, of books that I've been uh, sitting on, waiting to tackle.
0: And we both have a, a have a background in history, in in publishing, and in books. Since we can talk about the book in a spoilery way, because it's a book club, you're supposed to have read it. Is is this Earth? Is it an alternate universe? Is it a computer simulation? Right. So is we can area... talk
1: about we can talk. Yeah,
0: about the... it's a book club. Is Area X a computer simulation? Especially because at the end of at the end of Born, you see this window into this other world that is either. A different timeline, a different universe, a simulation itself. The real world in this and the world we're in the book is not the real world.
1: Also, I just thought of this, like, is that doorways, like, other universes? Or, like, it hit me that that's, like, this is a story of colonialism. This is, like... A company that terraforms and changes history. And I was thinking about like, like, that's the story is that it felt like someone else came in, kind of like the, the founding of America, you know, like someone else came in, they brought stuff, they brought supplies, and then it's like infecting and changing the landscape. And then it withdraws. But that becomes like they mentioned at the end, kind of like history and reality begin to change.
0: Did this company come in and infect this world on purpose as kind of a test bed as an experiment? Ah, uh, did things just get out of control and they didn't mean to destroy the world that we see in the book? And yeah. all of a sudden
1: you have giant flying bears? Well, that was the question I had. It was like how much of it was intentional? How much of it was accidental? Was this an exploration? Was this a takeover? But at the end it feels like it's a takeover. And it feels like this was, again, like a terraforming, a planned colonization. But for what? You know, was the other world dying or is it merely an expansion? It's kind of like the, you know, that's like the colonialism thing again, where you, you know, her story in the past was they were escaping something dying, but everything we see in that other world looks like it's perfectly okay. It's just to brave new areas, to continue to throw seeds like born as a seed. And you never see anyone. They talk about the company all the time, but you never see anyone from
0: the company. And when they finally go there, there's nobody there. Yeah. Did they all get killed? Did Except they run away? Did they go through the portal back into the other world? Or did they become the foxes? Did they become the, fo- oh, did they become the, the foxes? Oh, they the
1: foxes? are the weirdest part of the book. Those, like, quantum foxes. I don't know what you call them. Like, these things that just—or she, she doesn't even really know if they're foxes. I feel like at the end, like, reality is—it's um, like an occlusion. Like, she just basically says they're foxes, but then says later on that they might have hands. Or she says they keep changing. Well, anything can be anything else. Because right. Because
0: can can shapeshift. And a bear can fly.
1: Ooh, that's the other thing is that once. So it's like the unreliable narrator, like the moment born becomes a shapeshifter. I immediately distrusted and questioned every single thing in the book. And it's interesting because like everything could have been anything and it totally threw me for loops. Like I really thought the magician was Rachel. Oh, Wow. Yeah, like I, I, was, I did
0: not take that at all, but I, I get that.
1: I was assuming that would be the revelation that, that, that there were many Rachels. I was surprised Everyone by the WIC. Everyone
0: is Wh- a Rachel because you see so few
1: other people. Yeah. You
0: hear about other people, but you don't really see, oh, we we met these traders and we traded with them, but you don't meet them except for some kids.
1: Eventually, you meet some kids. Right. I was more surprised that Wick. Was an was an invention. I really thought the maybe that's what was being led towards. I really felt the revelation that was being hidden from her was that Rachel was a creation and that there were many Rachels. That's and that, what I
0: thought too. Yeah, right. But and maybe out that's out the good. Way, t- but maybe that is still true. Right. We don't really know. It's like Blade Runner with the implanted memories. So Blade Runner is a good kind of analogy for this. Oh, totally. Because uh, you have biomechanical people who don't know that they're not you know, quote-unquote, real.
1: Yeah, and Ex Machina. And it did give me feelings of, like, there's a little bit of, like, the alien or, like, even, I mean... Prometheus well, is not a great movie, when, but Prometheus.
0: Right. When you said, you know, Rachel uh maybe one of these creations, at first I thought of Prometheus. I forget the actor's name real fast. Who was the. Oh, yeah. Um, that. But
1: then I went back to the original alien and Ash, who was played by. Uh, uh, oh, Ian Holm. Ian Holm. Is that the, the yeah, android? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, oh, um, uh, Fassbender. Yeah, 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 yeah. Magneto. Yeah, Michael Fassbender. Yeah, exactly. I love him. In the future, everyone will be known by their superhero name. Right. It's the Magneto. <laughs> The part of the story that made me saddest was all of her memories—just the, uh, the those tales in the restaurant and the dancing creatures. Yeah, on you the table. knew that
0: story would would come out piece by piece as you went.
1: Yeah, there was something kind of so pathetic about it and kind of ominous and suggesting that in consumer culture, like that we're leaning on this stuff that can't, the center can't hold.
0: Well, it takes like a timeline from the Southern Reach trilogy where things are just starting to fall apart and advances it a decade or so yeah. to after basically nature takes over in a lot of ways mm-hmm. or, this, or this twisted version of nature.
1: So then her memories and now occurs to me, like all that stuff. Oh, could be implanted, yeah. Could be implanted, just but it's like, also... Uh,
0: just like in uh, Blade Runner.
1: Or maybe that's, you know, that's what it's like to be living in a world where all that stuff is 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 commonplace, you know, bold. And everyone has a cult,
0: just like we have an Apple cult and a Nintendo cult and another technology company
1: cult. I was so fascinated, too, by the holding ponds. These, like, discard ponds that the company supposedly proudly gets rid of all of its mistakes into defend for themselves and survive
0: but it becomes this sort of like petri dish where new things happen right and i'll tell you what that made me think of the original mary shelley's frankenstein the oh, creature yeah. is not created on an operating table with lightning coming down he's actually created in a giant vat
1: oh and you really? see
0: i think you can see some of that in the original thomas edison version of frankenstein from like 1915 this lost film that was only rediscovered a few years ago. Before that, there was only like one like still of it. And you could see this, you know, creature. But then they found a copy of it. It's it's actually terrible because it's from 1915. Uh, but it's this uh, uh, Thomas Edison movie company version of Frankenstein. I think it's like 15 or 20 minutes long. And I think it has a similar sort of very, very authentic to the book creation scene.
1: Oh, wow. See, I've never actually read the original Frankenstein. I need to read that. Next book club choice.
0: Yeah, seriously. Ranked to... sign
1: of the modern Prometheus from 18, uh, I forget when. Also, the the holding pond is a little bit like, you know, it's like TechCrunch Disrupt. <laughs> 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 it's the survival of the startups. It's a bake-off. Whoever uh, whoever can survive makes it. It's 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 what is it, like Skunkworks. It's like maybe that is an intentional competition pond to develop new ideas. Well, like, the whole it's
0: not- city is a competition between these different between these different factions. Who's going to survive? Is this all being
1: monitored remotely? Is there anything outside of the city? Yeah, we have no idea. The Mord thing was was pretty horrifying because the idea that they had to start making things based on humans, according to Wick. So this was a an actual human or something built. Resembling a human, that they just kept mutating until it became a language-free giant bear, kind
0: of like in uh, the classic Genesis game, Altered Beast. Yeah,
1: it was the it's the biggest Altered Beast in the world. And then he just flies, and that's cool. Yeah, I, that is the fun part with biotech. You can just kind of, eh, it happens. You know, there's it's it's kind of like it's back to like you say, technology is magic, freeing itself from some of the details that might bear that, that might you know bog us down. Going a little more freeform with possibilities. That's what I like
0: about this book and also the Southern Reach books is they don't get too bogged down in realism or the technical details, but they offer just enough little hints of like, oh, this is how this part of the universe works. This is how that part works, like when you had to crawl through the tiny crawl space that was invisible to get to Area X from like suburban Maryland right uh, and all of a sudden you're in this other world but you can't see it from the outside but i've given you just enough rules that you find it believable that there's this transition space
1: that's an, and that's another thing that's in this too is you have these transition spaces there's doorways there's a, a a number of times doorways are appearing whether you're like creating new tunnels or you know that way is the way to where the magician is or the long crack that they're crawling through to get to the company or the mysterious tunnel that the foxes dig and you know it's it's or the mirror, um, that, that mirror uh, wall. So, yeah, there are a lot of, like, doorways that keep showing up in his writing, but, like, in this book, too.
0: If you think about the the apartment complex where where Rebecca and Wick live, I'm reading this description. Uh, it seems to have everyone has their own room, that there are skylights, uh, even though it's sort of post-apocalyptic dystopian. I'm like, you know, in New York,
1: this would be some really nice real estate. Yeah, it's fine. Just, like, tear down some walls like Bourne does. I kept wondering about the giant swimming pool, how that worked, this big infected. Oh, where he grows all his little like uh, like Frankenstein uh, things. Yeah. 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 That's Ed, the most Ed's Frankenstein.
0: The company does this on a big scale. Wick does it in his in his apartment complex on a smaller scale. Oh, and the bugs. Everything is bugs. Oh, mm-hmm. I have some uh, protective spiders in my pocket. Here you go. Oh, I'm I'm using an ear beetle. Oh, now I'm going to eat it instead. You can eat your
1: technology if you need to. It totally made me think of David Cronenberg in several ways. In a good way, because Cronenberg's explored this a couple of times, like uh, Naked Lunch or Existence. With biotech that you have a relationship with, like the game pod, I, I kept thinking about that type of thing, exactly. like stuff that you have living alongside you that invades you, that it influences you.
0: That is the ultimate end game to a biomechanical future. The technology becomes edible.
1: Yeah, you can you, you that can is iPhone. the ultimate
0: uh, crossover purpose. You can use it as as a tool or you can eat it. When you're done with it, instead of recycling it, you just eat it.
1: Well, it's like the fear of implants or the excitement of implants, depending on who you are. Yeah, just extending it to the point where you have no idea where the implant begins or ends. Like the worms, like the diagnostic worms. Just say, oh, yeah, there's these parasites running through you that just kind of, uh, that are just part of you. Also s- in
0: September, edible iPhone 8. I'm calling it right now.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You just, like, put it right in your, in your on your skin Not and only- it absorbs <laughs> through your skin into your body. You don't you don't swallow it. It just your skin, like, born gently uh, copies it. Not only can you not replace the battery when you're done with it, you just eat it. And well, that's the other thing that we, actually the book never really gets deeper into, but born and its role as taster and copier. Whatever it eats, it has kept inside itself and that these are apparently to, to born still alive, floating in there. We never really, we see him take on different, or it take on different forms. You know, what is that all about? Is that, was that, was that uh, sending information back to the company? Was that building a database like a 3D Mm. printer? Is this just the nature of like things becoming software? Everything is a form. Everything lives forever. It's just the ultimate glomming into like gray goo.
0: Until you said it right now, I didn't make this connection, but that reminds me of all the various uh, versions of, of the story The Thing that we know of is a yeah, movie The Thing totally. where a creature absorbs and imitates people. And that goes back to Who Goes There, which is the original story from, I think, the 1950s. Uh, which is actually very interesting. It's a, it's a short story. It, it's it's like a it's like a novella, but it's actually really good, and it follows very closely the John Carpenter version in a lot of ways. Hmm. Not plot point by plot point, but but sort of the the feel of it is very close to that. This creature that absorbs and imitates isn't necessarily evil. It's just doing what it does.
1: Oh, and that makes me think of like the Twilight Zone and like obviously like the whole period of like you know pod people invasion by snatchers and like the question of you know identity i think about this book and what is really interesting about van Dammeer's book this time after the southern reach trilogy which filled me with dread this book filled me with dread but there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of and, and some reviews that hit on that i mean i still feel like there's a lot of dread in the end but it it's trying to put a lot of kindness into it so like born it's so interesting versus the thing is obviously terrifying but it seems like he does as much as possible to really make that have a heart or seem like it has a heart and that's the most heartbreaking part. Is is everything's trying. Everything's trying to be good in an impossible way.
0: And it's because I wondered, and I jotted this down as a question: Is born actually a nice creature, or is he just being a manipulator? Right. Or does he know the difference? Does he be? Does he start as one and become the other? Does he even know the difference when he says, "Oh, am I a person? Is he just being? Is he actually curious, or is he just being charming to his human hosts so he can eat them later?"
1: I feel like it's it's like AI. It's like it's, and it goes back to Blade Runner. Like it's it's a program and it's wrestling with the program. Maybe the program has mutated. It's it's not really real, but it it wants to believe that it's real. That's so. question:
0: Is it an AI? Can you grow an AI? That's the ultimate sort of biomechanical construct. Something I mean, that's an AI but
1: it is biological at the same time. This definitely feels like AI, like the way it learns that. I mean, I love that opening part of the book where it's just about born learning and having those weird hybrid conversations of, of bits and pieces. It, it makes me think of like all of the AI bots that are there now and and um and explorations and machine learning that are like blending styles of speech from the books. And yeah, that's the point where you're like you just don't know. Yeah, maybe what born is, is just mostly based on Rachel. Oh yeah, like it just absorbed her it's, personality, he smelled
0: a certain way because she would find that pleasing. I, and I, since we talked about his sort of manipulation, and and at the end, you know, he's sort of reborn as something that reminded me of um, Groot from yeah from Guardians of the Galaxy, where he's reborn as sort of he just pretends to just be a plant and not move for a while to kind of stay undercover. I want to talk about that more, but now it's time to call. Time to call Jeff Andemir. All right, let's Skype him up. This is hey there, Jeff. Hey, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you just fine. This is Dan Ackerman, and I'm here with uh, Scott Stein. We're in New York. Hi. Hi. I, I think my my initial question, and Scott and I were just talking about this, mm-hmm. is would you call this? We're, we're very interested in sort of genre and what people how mm-hmm. people classify things, uh, the sort of uh, taximony of it. Which would you mm-hmm. call this a science fiction book? How do you feel about the genre placement?
2: I, I've been called just about everything in the book over time, and uh, so I've become a little cynical about labels, uh, but they are useful in kind of directing the reader in, in some ways. And so while there is this you know relationship at the heart of the novel between the narrator, Na- Rachel, and Bourne that I think is very much almost in kind of a mainstream literary tradition, the novel itself kind of falls under kind of a science fantasy kind of you know, mode because there's mythic elements. I'm not really interested in explaining the biotech from like a hard science fiction point of view. So sometimes the novel can almost feel kind of fabulous because, you know, you have this giant flying bear and I might, you know, provide an explanation for that down the line. But, um, but yeah, so science fantasy um, kind of provides a place where I can go into the mythic and yet still be kind of relevant to talking about the future.
0: That's interesting because I've been doing some research recently in sort of the history of of science fiction in in the early parts of the 20th century. And Mm -hmm. before they had that term, they would use things like science fantasy and and other sort Mm -hmm. of combinations of words to describe this genre that didn't really exist yet.
2: Yeah. And sometimes what they really were talking about is cross genre or hybrid work that they couldn't place otherwise, um, in terms of like the pulp tradition or the golden age of science fiction. And, you know, you can, you can call it whatever you want, but there is something about the distance you can get from things. Um, you know, I don't feel inborn the need to describe, you know, go on for four or five pages about how the biotech works, um, which I think is kind of better in terms of, Thinking from a, a person's perspective in the future, I mean, you don't read a mainstream literary novel and expect to get five pages about how a smartphone works, and and so you know that 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 relieves me of that responsibility, while I can still get the essence of the connections between like the different creatures uh, and how kind of the biosphere works and born um, in a way that's still kind of scientific and logical, but 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 allows me that extra dimension.
1: I think what's really interesting uh, when I read it and also reading Southern Reach trilogy is. Uh, is a sense of reality at play. You get the sense through Southern Reach of reality being in question throughout, uh, you know, on both sides. It, it was different for me in Bourne because mm. reading it, once you become aware of of things taking on other forms, mm-hmm. I question everything. And then there's a, there's a sense of um, memory being withheld, something lurking all the time and never quite mm-hmm. getting a sense of entirely what that is. But I always felt like I was being watched. I always felt that reality was shifting. And that does seem to show up a lot in in, in your work.
2: Um, well, I, I like the idea of backdrops, not just being inert because in real life, when we walk through a landscape, the backdrop isn't actually inert even though we're the hero of our own story. And so a lot of times the backdrop is doing things that can seem a little uncanny or make you feel like you're being watched. And in Born, for example, I have the feeling that the little foxes, which may or may not be biotech, but are definitely more intelligent than the foxes we have, are kind of peering in and watching the whole time. And, um, you know, memory does appear in and watch because memory is history. And in Rachel's case, the narrator's case, you know, her memory of this island nation she grew up on is the only link she really has to the past at that point. Um, there's nothing tangible around her that that can remind her otherwise um, and it's one reason also why there are so many sea images in something that is set in a desert city because that's what her memory is so she kind of populates the city with her memory even how she talks about it metaphorically
0: those memories how reliable are they are they implanted memories we were thinking back to you know Blade Runner and other sort of uh, mm-hmm. stories that combine biomechanical elements with I- elements of identity and self-determination and AI trying to figure out you know whose memories are real uh, Scott had a theory of Uh, He just told me about during the book that he thought that Rachel would end up being the magician.
1: I totally thought mm-hmm. that would be the case.
0: Yeah.
2: I, okay. Well, um, that's interesting you say that because the magician who is kind of one of the antagonists um, in the novel, even though I don't really do like straight up evil good characters any, uh, at any time. Um, I did see there being a resonance between them. And, and it wasn't so much that that would be the reveal, which, which it isn't, of course, and, um, not, uh, so I don't you know, spoil anything. But uh, the fact that there was a resonance there, like this is a path that Rachel could have gone down. Mm. if she wanted power in the city. And so I did want there to be almost a kind of a doppelganger effect there. Um, But, you know, memory is really interesting because, you know, our own memories are suspect no matter what, because we implant memory in a sense in ourselves. You know, we look at a picture of something from our childhood and eventually we can't tell the difference between whether it's something that we actually remember or something we just saw in this photo. Um, so i I found exploring that to be very, very interesting.
1: The idea of the company and its role as a a kind of as a colonialist uh, mm. presence, and it felt like it you know, kind of expansionism or or, or rewriting mm-hmm. the history of a space and um mm-hmm. and even born being like this uh, copier of all things, um storing memories, maybe collecting them for. Mm-hmm. Uh, for future purposes. Um, and that also begins to bleed like they did. You can't ever go back that maybe um, mm-hmm. even evolution like changes forms and there's no putting it back in the bottle.
2: No, absolutely. And um, that's that's one of the the things that's kind of central to the themes and, and what the characters are grappling with is that they have these memories of the city as it existed before and they can't ever get back to that. All they can do is try to recombine the elements they have now to get to some some point that's realistic, but has some element of the idealistic in it um, from that past. And even that past they're talking about may not have been as ideal as they think. It's just in comparison to what they're experiencing now with regard to the company, you know, I debated giving the company a name, and then I thought, unfortunately, this process in our current world is so omnipresent and generic that it kind of made sense to just call it the company. And you do see this. You see this with multinational corporations today who go into an area and kind of like suck the resources out to make products that they then then ship to, quote unquote, richer parts of the world. Um, So that's another example of where I try to get at the right level of hierarchy to have something mythic. Uh, or, or or, not as defined, but it's still very relevant to to where we are today.
1: And we were fascinated by the holding uh, ponds. This idea mm. of like discards, but also it was a competitive. It felt like a competitive bake off like startups. You know, there was like a little bit of, <laughs> of both going on
2: well well yeah and and i think that's realistic too in that you know uh, unfortunately as we progress through the period we're in where there's more and more polluted areas and and places that are not pristine wilderness anymore we really have to think about the biosphere in terms of places that we think of as broken that, that we don't discard them just because they're broken because even places that are heavily polluted still have some kind of hybridized life there. And so I really wanted to show that. Um, and I wanted to have that presence there. And I also wanted to show that runoff as the byproduct of the things the company is doing because those things are usually hidden. We don't, as consumers, see the hidden costs of the products that we consume.
1: You're often, and I don't know if you, how much, I've read a lot of your other books and and uh, mm-hmm. you're put in this position in, in the vanguard of, of a new, weird, Writing. Mm. But what is it like to be writing stuff that's that's being defined as weird in times that are being seen as increasingly weird?
2: Well I think I, I like the term weird fiction in part because it's harder to commodify. It's not gonna ever be a, a category in the bookstore and, and one of the problems with labels is they wind up being discussions about marketing. And so any time that you can find a label that isn't a discussion about marketing, then it becomes more about the work itself. It's also not quite as defined as like science fiction. So there's some room there in terms of debating what the weird is, which I think is always a good thing. I'm I'm always kind of suspicious of of certainty. Um, But it's true also that this is a haunting that we're kind of experiencing with climate change. You know, it, it appears locally in certain manifestations, but it also, you know, is worldwide uh, and the localized manifestations can feel very uncanny. They can make the landscape unfamiliar to us. And so I think it's a very potent way of an entry point to, to narrative that kind of gets that across without being, you know, too experimental because you also want to connect with readers. Uh, and, and so you you want to look for new approaches, but you can't be too openly experimental or or you miss the point of trying to show something interesting about our environment. So I, so I like the term and I, and I think it's an an interesting space to be working in.
0: And speaking about being accessible to readers, Scott and I were both talking about how this uh, book feels like it has a more conventional structure mm-hmm. versus sort of the more out there structure of Southern Reach, which I thought reminded me at times of kind of what David Lynch is doing right now in Twin mm-hmm. Peaks, uh, where it's really interesting, but it really is a, you know, a journey you have to go yeah. on. And Scott actually made a good point that to him, this book feels a little more like David Cronenberg, uh, ah. who's, of course, uh-huh. very interested in yeah. in the new flesh.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, Cronenberg's a really expert at getting those weird concepts across in a way that it's still very oddly like it connects with an audience. Right. Um, And so there are two things. Southern Reach was really about all these characters who cannot in their personal lives connect. And then the overarching theme was encountering something that the human mind cannot understand. So in that context. There's a lot of amb- ambiguity by the end of the series and there just had to be because that was the theme. So I was kind of itching to show that I can do a traditional three-act structure with a lot of traditional closure. But one reason that you do that is because you know that there are other elements like a giant flying bear that are going to be pretty out there. So when you do that, you can't experiment in other ways or you just lose you lose your reader. And I don't want to lose my readers. I want to provide something that's entertaining. And so Born does have these giant set piece battles and then also has this very personal relationship between Rachel and Bourne uh, as he kind of grows and she kind of becomes his mother that I think is the core of the novel. And it's why people are coming up to me who say, "I I don't read science fiction, Jeff, but I love this book. Or, you know, I would never pick up a book about a giant flying bear, but the Rachel Bourne story carried me through this entire thing. And and so I've been really kind of touched by the number of general readers who have come up to me and just like they've been, they've responded to the book. And I feel very, very blessed by that.
1: Yeah, it's very, it's, it's kind of relentlessly hopeful at times. And it feels mm-hmm. like, um, you know, pieces that we, we may have seen in other more uh, definitely mm. dystopian and ominous, and there's a lot of that in here. But yeah, the, what really carries through for me, there were so many moments that were hopeful and heartbreakingly emotional at times where, where normally you'd expect it to be more disruptive. You know, it ends on this hopeful tone, and a lot of moments are are hopeful. Out of these pieces, like you know, again, this like absorbing creature that is reminiscent of the thing, or or you know, I think about all these mm-hmm. movies, even like Ex Machina, that are usually about where that goes bad, and this is always mm-hmm. about like the heart of of something in
2: there. Well, I think that Rachel is trying to connect even with her relationship with Wick, her partner, even though that is a very contentious relationship, she's trying hard to find love and relationship in the middle of all this to have an actual life in the midst of a post-apocalyptic setting. And also she rolls up her sleeves and she does what she needs to do to survive. And so that is inherently hopeful. You know, she goes through a lot. They go through a lot in this book. I mean, it's a hard one kind of hope by the end. And and that's the only kind of hope that I think um, works in fiction these days when we have so many things out there that are obstacles to a future, to a better future. I mean, I don't like the idea of escapism in this context, but I did try to pick my spot with regard to where hope could be found. And also, of course, the conversations between Rachel and Bourne were a lot of fun to write. And there's a lot of humor there that readers don't expect. But the fact of the matter is, even when someone's trying to survive and that's their main goal, you still crack a dark joke or two. You know, I mean, it's why ER nurses crack jokes all the time, you know. So so I wanted to, to not have something that was monotone and just relentlessly grim.
0: And he's such a great, interesting character. Uh, we were trying to figure out for ourselves whether he's actually curious about, you know, the world. Mm. Am I a person? Is he just a master manipulator? And that came back to another question because we cover a lot of technology that we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. Is Born an AI? Would you call him mm. an artificial intelligence?
2: That's a really interesting question. It's interesting because, you know, in my research for environmental causes and the presentations I do on that and storytelling, I have talked to a lot of AI experts who say that they're only in the last couple of years really seriously looking at animal intelligence as something to incorporate into AI projects. And so what I see happening is that the divide between what you might call AI and biotech is closing in the same way that the difference between art and biotech is closing because gene splicing is becoming so easy. (laughs) And so what you're seeing is you're seeing potentially down the line there being no difference between those things and those terms becoming much more complex than they are now, which is kind of frightening in a way because there's a lot of ethical and moral things we need to think about before we go too far down that road, but also potential opportunity that that, that could be good for us and the planet.
1: It seems like we've been, you know, we've been immersed in cyberpunk for, for decades. And I remember, I mean, this also made me think of reading a while ago, Paul Filippo's book Ribofunk. And I, you know, I know that time there was like an idea that might be like the beginning of biopunk. W- would you think of this in that as a piece of, of like a future movement in, in biopunk? Or is that even something now that we're beginning to think about? I know there's a lot of climate change fiction and, and biological, but does that fit into the equation? Yeah, and
2: that's a really good uh, term to reference because I feel like sometimes a term will have a false start because it's not the right time or something else is around that's the dominant meme, so to speak. And I think that we're seeing more and more of that. I mean, um, we we have kind of a biotech novel coming out from Robin Sloan this fall. Also, Annalee Newitz has a kind of AI biotech novel coming out. And these are really interesting perspectives and there are a lot more coming. So I think that, you know, as always, there's this combination of Fiction predicts the future to some degree and then helps create it because you know then it gets in people's minds, just like NASA scientists were inspired by science fiction. But then also fiction reflects what's going on and that's what's what's going on.
0: I, I thought one of the most interesting things, Scott, I'm talking about how the book, uh, you know, it, it wraps up a lot of the loose ends nicely. It gives you a story mm-hmm. arc that you're almost not expecting at the end. But there are glimpses of things that you want to find out more about and maybe we'll mm-hmm. find out more about in the future. I think the thing we were the most fascinated by at the end was this little window glimpse into this other world, this other company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and our internal debate here has been is the world that we're experiencing in the book, is that actually Earth? Is it an alternate universe? Is it a computer simulation? Mm-hmm. Is there? Mm-hmm. Is, is this a topic we may come back to and explore at some other point? Because we're fascinated by the concept that yeah. the entire thing might be a simulation mm-hmm. or an alternate uh, reality.
2: Yeah. I find like Elon Musk's obsession with whether we're a simulation kind of hilarious. Because what are we going to do if we find out it's a simulation, ask them to pull the plug? Um, we're not going to have a lot of power in that context if it's true. But I think in fiction, there's a real danger if you go that route because nothing has any meaning then at the end. And so for me, it's definitely not a simulation. I would say that there's all kinds of other interpretations you can have that would fit uh, the end of the book. And one thing I wanted to leave open-ended was that. Now, with regard to that, with regard to the foxes, with regard to the dead astronauts, uh, I am working on a couple of new uh, pieces of like novella length that will answer some questions there. You'll learn what the mission of the dead astronauts was uh, that are mentioned early in the book. And I also have a novella called The Strange Bird, uh, which picks up on the journey and travails of the strange bird that's mentioned uh, Inborn, and there's also a beast Jerry that's coming out. So you know, there's all this stuff that maybe the narrative questions that are left at the end have kind of like lodged in my mind, and I want the answers too. And I mean, I know the answers already, but it's different at the street level when you actually write the write the fiction.
1: I also love the process uh, that it mm. seems like with this. You know, you have a novel coming out imminently, and you have these other pieces that are coming out soon at, at a more rapid pace than just you know a second book, which I think is exciting. It almost reminds me of sort of like a hybrid of episodic, or um, in video games they're. These great Mm -hmm. storylines, where suddenly you'll have a new chapter that you can experience Mm -hmm. that expands the story out, and in in a great way reminds me of that. I mean, is that um, are you sort of expanding in a new way with that, or like?
2: I think so. I mean, the thing there's two things. It's that FSG MCD FSG, my publisher, is really adroit at looking at other models of how you put out creative work and then using them. I mean, the Southern Reach was put out, you know, three books in one year, for example. And so they're always willing to adapt to the situation and also to put forward a new way You know, that sounds like just a marketing thing, but it's actually a creative thing, because when I was thinking about these ideas I wanted to write, I knew that no matter what I did, they'd have my back and they'd have an interesting way to put it out. And that kind of frees you up creatively. So I didn't intend to write this this long novella about the strange bird. But this amazing idea came to me and I realized that there were questions there that needed to be answered. And I knew that once I finished it, that they would find a great way to put it out. So you know, sometimes the creative side and the marketing side really are connected, and you you are able to relax into something that you w- wouldn't otherwise be able to relax in, uh, into because your publisher has your back and and has new ways of doing things.
0: Just the ability to take something new and put it out, you know, mm-hmm. immediately and not like wait a year after you turn in a manuscript to get turned around and then published. Yeah, uh, seems seems like one of those rare steps forward for the book publishing industry, which is one of those. Uh, uh, in many ways locked in the past businesses in in the years you've been mm-hmm. writing how have you seen the publishing industry change or not change
2: well i think for a long time publishers didn't really know what to do with the internet and with you know with ebooks and i think you saw that you'd see like long book trailers which of course we now know are not really that effective and things like that I think they are adapting more now, and I, and MCD FSG, I have to say, is kind of one of the leaders at that behind the scenes. Um, it's kind of funny because you'll see people doing interviews about what they're doing, publishing-wise, um, and I don't I, I don't think that FSG uh, MCD ever gives those interviews, and really the people who are doing the interesting work rarely do <laughs> give away what they're doing. Um, but it's it's really heartening to see. Um, I think publishing has changed in that it's a lot of publishing companies started out as mom pop organizations and then institutionalized business rules that aren't necessarily actually logical. <laughs> um, and so having been published by a lot of different places, you kind of see the variations where they think their process is logical because it's the only process they've ever known really this kind of interesting ecosystem is evolving where I think it's good for everybody because there's so many different ways to publish and there's so many different ways to have a career, so to speak. Uh, And there's no one way that's the best way. So I think that's always, always good.
1: What's this next novella about? I'm so curious about this.
2: Well, in Inborn, uh, there's a mention of a strange bird that comes to the city and is transformed by the magician. And that just kind of lodged in my head. I was really sorry for the strange bird, but I was also curious where the strange bird come from. And sometimes you leave something in a narrative because it just kind of makes mythic sense. But then it kind of gnaws at you. And so The Strange Bird is the story of this, this, um, this kind of hybrid creature created in a laboratory far from the city who escapes um, this laboratory where she's been experimented on. And actually you, you learn, and it's not really a spoiler, that part of her is kind of human and a very specific human. And you follow her somewhat episodic adventures until it kind of coincides with the timeline of Born, Uh, And she comes into contact with a magician, and she actually makes contact with the little foxes in a way that, that Rachel could have no knowledge of. And so if you get up to the point where uh, she meets the magician, there are no spoilers. And at that point it joins the timeline of Born, and you kind of see the magician in a different light and you see some of the other characters in a different light and you get a better idea of what those foxes are up to. And, uh, you know, it's really about, you know, what it is to try to make, make your way in the world when you're a thing that's new, (laughs) that's never been done before. And what does that mean? And how do you find yourself? And it's my first attempt at one of my first attempts at actually writing from a non-human perspective while still having kind of an adventure story around it.
1: And is there any hint you can give about the bestiary that's coming yes. out after that? I, I looked think, at the Thackeray yeah. T. Lambshead books and I love those <laughs> compendiums of when I first yes. read one, I didn't know if they were real or not. I had the sense of like uh, like found, found footage.
2: Yeah. Um, I think uh, MCD is going to put that on their website digitally with illustrations from Eric Nyquist who did the Southern Reach paperback covers uh, very soon. And uh, I just, I went back and I counted all the creatures in Bourne and there were 120. And when I listed them all out, about 35 of them suggested additional narrative. And so they're like little mini stories that are not just descriptions of the creatures in question, but a little bit more backstory, things that Rachel could never know. Um, And so it just fleshes it out a little bit and it's hopefully a little delightful extra kind of grace note for readers who like Bourne.
0: Uh, that's pretty much, I think, what we wanted to talk about. Did yeah. we miss anything Whoa. super important? But those are
2: great questions. I got to tell you, I've been talking about this book for the last eight weeks. So I'm kind of like on a loop with some questions. And, sure. and you asked some questions I hadn't heard before that got me to engage, which is great because I feel thanks. like a broken record at this point. So uh, it thanks, should be thanks. fairly fresh and original.
1: Great. We're excited to kick this off. And we just realized we started reading a lot of books uh, and had them in common. And we said we uh-huh. start talking about this. Yeah.
0: I said, hey, let's do a
2: book
1: club
0: because we do all these other podcasts and shows here at CNET. And we're like, hey, this would be a great one to do. Yeah, yeah.
2: A book club is always a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. No, thanks. And thanks again for the opportunity.
0: All right, great. I feel like uh, that was highly successful. That was awesome. Maybe we do Uh, a wrap. You want to do a quick two-minute wrap-up? Yeah, Yeah, I didn't get to ask the question about uh, the unnaming of things. He mentioned there was no point in giving the corporation a name. And I thought there was a uh, parallel there between the unnamed scientists in the first uh, yes. annihilation book yes. and the the city doesn't have a name uh even Air- area x It's like yeah. a placeholder name it's not yep. a real name uh so so that's it's interesting the unnamed makes it you know kind of more mysterious and more and more dangerous in a way
1: yeah i think so i think it's like an extension of the uh, literature of the weird you know it's it's uh it's the unknowable it's the uncanny uh
0: but that like- takes me back to Weird Tales and those pulp magazines of the 30s and 40s where you had so much of this groundbreaking sort of genre-jumping fiction. Uh, yeah. Even going back to, even before that, things like H.P. Lovecraft, who would publish stuff in like Weird Tales-style magazines mm-hmm. that were like, you know, horror and science fiction. But if you look at it now, there's a lot of this sort of uh, biological weird stuff going on.
1: Yeah, and I also thought it was interesting when you talked about the episodic. Uh, I know that part of that is like, is like marketing, but it's also um, – everything now is episodic. Like we're so ingrained with like TV shows and and games and and, and and things we publish online and podcasts and you know, that's just the way we are. So um, it, it does feel like the slow unfolding, even though that sounds just kind of like a new medium, I think it's interesting because it also affects how you tell a story. So. Oh, it's
0: so new for publishing, the ability to yeah. put something out right away instead of waiting a year or two. It's so it's so antithetical to the way traditional book publishing works, having gone through this process. I'll tell you one thing. Yeah. If you're going to publish a, a novel, they really want it to be a series or a trilogy or an mm-hmm. ongoing thing. They can go back and monetize again and again, but they want to do it every you know 24 months. They want you to have a new, you know, Jack Reacher book every X number of months, and you you plan it out, you write it for a year, you give it to them. They sit on it for a year, then they publish it, and by that time you're working on on the next one. So this ability to just do this digital-only content, The Strange Bird, is basically an ebook only.
1: Yeah, and the piece Jerry sounds like it's going to be online, just to be able to look at, and so it's like a collected bunch. I mean, it's kind of almost like how J.K. Rowling expanded you know, Harry Potter or anything, you know, you have, you have your world building. I, I think it's fascinating. Maybe it will lead to like in TV shows that are like the leftovers or twin peaks where you can freely have loose ends. You don't have to worry how any episode wraps and you can leave mysteries. Maybe books can have a little more mystery and and loose ends. And you can come in where you want and leave where you want. Right. There's a a little more of a looseness and and understanding that 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 can happen because before you'd have to package everything so tightly and wrap up. So maybe it sounds like this has tendrils that... Are going into other things, which which I actually love. Um, as a as a requisite plug,
0: I'm going to point out that I had a book that came out last year. It's called The Tetris Effect. It's a nonfiction story about the real-life history of how Tetris was stolen from the Soviet Union, but it reads like a spy novel. And I know Scott has worked on a lot of projects.
1: Yeah, I have a creative uh, background I'm working on a lot of plays and, and things like that. I have MFA in theater, and I don't have a book yet. At some point, I bet there's uh, a gigantic pl- plan,
0: manuscript in a drawer somewhere.
1: I got some, I got some manuscripts in drawers. I think uh, the creative process has always been really fascinating to me. Before I ever was at CNET, uh, I think books are the one thread.
0: I mean, just like we're in the golden age of television in some ways, we're really in a golden age of literature and books in a lot of ways. It's so much easier to get and read books now. Technology has aided that through things like the Kindle. uh, Even though everyone always claims they prefer to read physical books, you you end up on the Kindle anyway. I love collecting old paperbacks. I was just in L.A. I went to this crazy place called... I think it's the last bookstore. It's in downtown LA, and it's this big, gigantic cavernous space. And they have this giant tunnel made of books upstairs that you can like crawl Where's through. Where's it at in LA? It's, it's downtown LA. It's near the convention center. Okay, I lived
1: in LA, and I never actually went there.
0: And what did I pick up? I picked up a couple of I, it's like you know, getting old like vintage uh, yeah. sci-fi paperbacks. So I got a I got a very early copy of *The Space Merchants* by Frederick Pohl, which I always wanted to read, and is not available as as an book
1: To come to Montclair, I'm not kidding. There is a great uh, traditional large cavernous bookstore. Store called the Montclair Book Center that uh, is exactly that tremendous, tremendous stacks of old paperback books and big, big caves, upper areas. But that's a, that's a good place. The Kindle saved me because at some point I had all these books I collected and I wasn't able to lug them back and forth. And the Kindle opened up my ability to finally perpetually read. I still love, there are so many books that aren't available and books that are big and interesting to pour through. Actually, another Jeff Vandermeer book, his, his book, Wonder Book, which is all about the process of writing, fantastic illustrated book. That is one that I just like to look at and keep nearby. So like mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the books you keep in your home and then there's the books I'm always taking with me to pour over. I would never be able to get through something like um, like Murakami's 1Q84. I finally got through it. But, you know, it's like you just have to keep plugging away at it because my speed of reading has tremendously decreased.
0: Whenever I travel, I throw an old paperback in my uh, bag along with my Kindle and I always try to like uh, get through, I, I always end up going back to the Kindle anyway uh, but someday I'll plug through these paperbacks. What they? I got the Space Merchants I, I finally figured out what I got and I, and I got an old paperback of uh, a collection of, of robot-themed short stories called War with the Robots Oh, cool! by Harry Harrison who famously wrote the book uh, Make Room, Make Room which became the movie Soylent Green.
1: I had a lot of books I've carried from place to place. And so in, in my basement, I, I had a, a couple of books I needed to go through that I'd lugged from around. One of them is an old Robert Anton Wilson book, Cosmic Trigger 2. I had always been obsessed with his books, finding them in, in various shops. Another one is David Bohm, his physicist, his his book on dialogue, which is all about exploring the nature of communication in a world of technology that's fragmenting. But he wrote this in 1996, It sounds like a book that would have been written now, Uh, but it shows that those ideas are continuing. They're ever present.
0: So what should we do next? I feel like we'll do this, like, periodically when we get a good book going that we can talk about because we got to give people a chance to, like, read books and and catch up with us. I know. I I had a random brainstorm. I have a thought. Okay. Uh, Maybe the next one should be Ready Player One because the movie is coming out.
1: We definitely at some point have to do that. I think maybe that's coming out, like, March next year. Oh, is it? Okay. I I thought it was a fall movie. I would say no. okay. So So I would say definitely, like, tied to that because i gotta finish reading it. so here's my nomination because i just bought which well, because i just mm-hmm. bought it and i've been excited to read it walk away by cory Doctorow.
0: oh i totally want to read
1: that okay yeah. now is it that good? i have not read it yet okay. but it's supposed to be great i love the premise which is basically a kind of exploration of economies and people who choose to leave society mm-hmm. because they can kind of build and manufacture their own stuff spontaneously echoes of maybe like william gibson's the peripheral um, what I thought was really interesting about Walk Away was recently at the New York Public Library, he had a, a chat with with Edward Snowden. And Snowden was, I think, helped him uh, research and brainstorm ideas in the book. So it's a very political book. It's a very, obviously, technology-driven book. But Doctor is really interesting because he's he's really interestingly rebellious in a lot of ways about kind of like the political nature of technology. No, I,
0: I, I was very interested in reading that. OK, that's that's when we we should dive into and see if that would be good. I like also— Cutting in and talking about like vintage books, not just new books. Yeah. Uh, there's a great one I read called uh, Mockingbird by Walter Trevis. And maybe I'll send you something like that you could take a look at. It's, oh, like yeah. a, it's like a dystopian New York in the future ruled by a robot overlord while the population gets dumbed down to uh, idiocracy levels.
1: Well, that sounds great. Uh,
0: it, it, it's it's super interesting. And the robot wants nothing more than to you know be able to... Stop ruling everybody and just die, and his programming won't let him.
1: The other one I, w- I could think of, I'm looking through. Oh, my zone Kindle. one would
0: be great to talk about. That's another new. Oh, York, yeah, Zone one, zone would, one would be awesome.
1: I've still never read Station Eleven. Oh, I love Station so Eleven. We got to talk about so Station that Eleven. So that could be a really good maybe one.
0: Maybe we can do a dystopian city
1: special episode. I think we should do that. I think we should explore maybe something by Rudy Rucker.
0: I don't know how that
1: is. So I have a book on called Transreal Cyberpunk Ooh. by Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling where they explore all their trans real writing because trans realism is, you know, it is again kind of a slipstream idea of like blending uh, things that are real and things that are fiction. Rudy Rucker is great. Rudy Rucker is the most madcap cyberpunk person. I think he's also a mathematician and, um, and painter. His stuff is in insane. It's the most, Insane collection of ideas that flies off the handle almost by design. Oh, uh, and
0: I feel like there's got to be a new that that sounds super cool. I feel like there's got to be a new William Gibson book coming out. Is that true? There is next year, yeah. January, and we should
1: try to hit that for the holidays if we possibly can. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's the next book uh, after The Peripheral. It's called is it called Agency? Maybe
0: that sounds right.
1: It embraces the uh, its agency. It embraces the idea of a parallel universe, speaking of which, at where Hillary Clinton is president. Yeah, that's right. But apparently that was like a happy accident. It was meant to be a continuation of it. It was written to explore more of the peripheral stub worlds. And it went with this Hillary Clinton thing. And then Trump became president. And apparently Gibson just went with it and said, you know what? This is just another one of the stub worlds. And we're just going to kind of see where it goes. So it's, it now becomes a major part of the you know, the identity of the book. But yeah, that's a bit, that's a big one. Right.
0: I think we're getting kicked out of here. We've went way okay. over
1: our time. And Annalie Newitt's book that he mentioned uh, sounds really fascinating. I think it's called Automa, Autonomous. Autonomous. Okay. Uh, I heard a lot of interesting stuff about that book. Uh, the buzz keeps growing, so I think that would be a really interesting one.
0: I'll say this has been the inaugural episode of the CNET Book Club, or as I call it, Nerd Books Only. Uh, so I'm Dan Ackerman. You can find me on Twitter,
1: At Dan Ackerman. I'm Scott Stein. You can also find me on Twitter at Jetscott.
0: And hopefully we'll be back to talk about another book real soon. Thanks a lot.